This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Russia is very much in the news these days thanks to the actions of Vladimir Putin. And they're in the news for all the wrong reasons. At least that's my perspective as a Western. Hello, my name's Brian Lilly, guest host for the Full Comment podcast this week. And we're going to take a look back to the USSR, a look at what has changed in Russia over the last several years. Now, before we get to our guest who has tremendous insight, having spent years living in Moscow and working there as a journalist, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to the podcast on any platform, the platform you're listening on it now. So please subscribe, please leave a comment, please leave a like, share this on social media. It absolutely helps get the word out for these interesting conversations that we try to bring you on full comment each and every week. Now, Russia is a country that, well, for someone of my vintage, we grew up fearing. We grew up worried about the Cold War, the possibility of a nuclear strike at any point. That was in the days of the USSR. In the early 90s, there was a glasnost, an opening up. There was a, a, a chance, an opportunity, we thought, for Russia to join the Western world, to for our countries not to be at a, a, a state of constant threat and war. Over the last several years, that has reverted. Russia is no longer the country that it was under Boris Yeltsin and others. So what is it like now compared to during that period of optimism, of hope, when Canada was going to Moscow to open the first McDonald's? What has changed? Well, Paul Robitaille is a former member of the National Assembly of Quebec, but from 1990 to 1996, she lived and worked in Moscow. She covered the collapse of the Soviet Union, the independent republics that came out of that, the change. She recently returned to the region after more than 25 years away, and she's been running a series in National Post called Back to the USSR, and she joins me now. Paul, thanks so much. Hello, Brian. What what was it like being in the USSR back in 1990? I can tell you that I still remember where I was when I heard that the Berlin Wall had collapsed. Yeah. And uh, I, it was an exciting time in my view, but I never got to visit. What was it like for you being there in, in that time before we ask you what it's like now? Well, actually, I was there when they uh, first opened the McDonald, when the Canadi some Canadians opened the first McDonald in Moscow in uh, 1990, 1991. Mm -hmm. I was uh, 
I was present and it was quite a, a quite a thing. Um, and there were huge lines up. You remember, you remember uh, at that time, uh, there was nothing in the stores. There were nothing, uh, you couldn't buy even bread. I mean, you have to line up to buy bread. Uh, there was to buy meat. Often you would arrive and there would be no meat. I, I remember it was so it was so difficult to 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 buy food in Moscow at that time. Um, if my Russian friend had their grandmothers, their babushka, their mothers that were that would line up, I had nobody. I was I was just by myself, and I I, I didn't have time to 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 wait in line, and I didn't have time to go to the dollar store because. Well, the dollar store over there was a place where it was not like the dollar store here now. It was like a place where you could buy in dollars stuff. And that was the only, that were the only places where you could really buy a lot of stuff. But it was, um, it, there were maybe two stores in Moscow and I didn't have time to go there. And I remember I was at the Canadian embassy and I fainted because I didn't eat for, for a whole day, and um, that—that's the way it was. It was really, really hard for people at that time, uh, hard economically. But there was hope—hope hope that things would get better, and they would have a liberal democracy, like we have a liberal democracy, and that they would be able to travel, to work, to make money, to buy stuff, and um, and some people did. And, but some people, for some people, especially the elderly, it was really, really hard. So it was a period of hope, but it was also very difficult. So while we saw it as a period of hope, they saw it as a period of, I can't eat, I can't get basics. But isn't that part of why, you know, I've often heard it said that the Berlin Wall fell because of rock and roll and Levi's, that they, they, would see what we had here and say, we don't have any of that. We want that. So was there a sense that among the people that you spoke to at that time that they wanted to become more Western, that they wanted our lifestyle, let's say? Well, I think it was really, really hard for the older generation because they didn't understand exactly how it worked on the other side. And they... Um, and, and they had a life behind them, and, and to, to adapt was hard. But for the younger generation, for the people of my age at the time, in their 20s, in their 30s, it was, it was really a period of hope. It was, yeah, it's hard, but we'll figure it out, and we'll go to Paris, and we'll go to Berlin, and we'll go to the States, and we'll be free. And it's the sense of freedom that really animated, animated people, and give that, gave them the energy to uh, uh, to continue, and it was beautiful to see like these young journalists for once in their lives thought I could do, I could write what I want to write, and I I, I can tell what I want to tell, and um, and that was really all new. So uh, so there was a lot of yeah, there was a lot of hope, and there was a, there was a sense that everything was possible. What was the most marked change that you saw between when you left in 1996 and when you returned late last year? Well, 
1996, it was a bit like the, the far west. It was, uh, there was a lot of crime. There was a lot, there were all kinds of gangs and, uh, it, you know, people, uh, these companies, these, these, these institutions that belonged to the government were, were liberalized and it was like a, a free for all. Um, so it was very chaotic. Chaotic, uh, the society was chaotic. Um, and uh, economically, you know, people, the salaries were not great. It was, they were struggling economically. Um, and so when I came back 25 years later, later there was, uh, there were cafes, there were people like in Kiev, for example, in Tbilisi, in Riga, uh, they are, they are European cities. You could go to cafes now. You could go and and go to uh, there's there's store there in, in Tbilisi. There's a uh, there's a great uh, there, there's a mall. There's many malls. Uh, there's malls in Riga. You could buy whatever you want. You people have salaries that permits them to to buy stuff to renovate with IKEA to. Uh, uh, to go to restaurants at night, it's hard. There's a very high inflation right now, but it's um, the, the, it's 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 Western societies uh, with the uh, and and they there they are much more freedom than they were at the time, even in '96. Were you able? So those were all cities in former Soviet satellite republics. Mm -hmm. Were you able to go back to Moscow and see what it's like there? I went back to Moscow in uh, 2011 and 2016, but I didn't go to Moscow during that trip. I don't know if I could get a visa, and if I get a visa, I don't know if it would be safe for me to go to Moscow. I have colleagues of mine, um, colleagues of mine from the CBC who had offices there, and they left, and they left because. Uh, it was it was dangerous to stay because if you pronounce the word war, you could go to prison for fifteen years, and and foreigners are not excluded of uh, are not excluded of, of these type of laws. So, and if you said that Russia is at war with Ukraine, you could go to jail. Yeah, you could go to jail. There's they passed a law during the last year and they passed, they, they, yeah, you could go to jail for 15 years. You could also be, um, as a foreigner, I think it's, there's a, there's also a risk that, uh, what's, what's the name of the young lady, the basketball player who was, uh, oh, who was uh, arrested. Griner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you could be, you could be, who knows what could happen to you. And then, you're arrested and then, you know, you're used uh, as an exchange for uh, some prisoners, you know. So uh, I, I understand. I've been very critical, safe. very yeah. critical of the government in Moscow mm -hmm. and in Beijing. It's a reason I won't visit either country. I, I want to come home. So obviously now this glasnost that we had hoped for for Russia, we'll talk about the, the places you did visit in a moment, but this hope that we had for the opening, the glasnost, in the early 90s, obviously did not come to fruition when it comes to Russia. Was it there at least a little bit in 2011, or has it been eroding for a long time? It was eroding since 2000. I have 
good friends, good Russian friends. <clears throat> Most of them are journalists. And uh, during the 90s, like I said earlier, it was extraordinary for them. They could, uh, I have a friend, he, he opened a magazine. He was, uh, he was a, a star on, on, uh, on television. He was uh, hosting all kinds of people, talking of, about all kinds of things on television. And um, he, uh, they had, uh, they had the newspapers, and they could express themselves. And of course, there were, there were. You talked about certain things regarding corruption was was dangerous. You could be the target of, of all kinds of things. So these friends um, lost lost everything um, during the, the the year 2000 and after. Uh, the friend I was talking to you about, who opened a magazine, lives now in, in Greece. He's in exile, and all his three sons are in exile, too. Um, I have another friend. It, it really is exile. exile, isn't it? It's not, they didn't choose to immigrate. They didn't want to immigrate. Mm -mm. They had to leave. They had to leave. Some of them uh, stayed uh, after between 2000 and, and the invasion, uh, some of them managed to stay, and they uh, they worked for Eco Moskve, that was one of the only independent media, and now it's closed. Um, but they they had to leave because it was simply too dangerous for them. My friend who lives in Montenegro, she uh, she she lives with a woman. Uh, she's she's a lesbian, and um, she was openly gay. And um, but she was also when there was the invasion, she was very vocally against the war, and she rapidly she felt in her building that uh, people were looking at her differently. Um, people were threatening, threatening her, threatening her a little uh, also. And so, after ten days, uh, they took their cat, they took everything they had, and they just escaped to. Uh, to Turkey. And from Turkey, they went to Montenegro, and they got married in Montenegro, and now they live there. So uh, yes, they live in exile. And when will they come back? They don't know. And um, the, the, the young people, the, the young Russian I, I've talked to in Tbilisi, in Georgia, who are also in exile over there, they're telling me, uh, we, we plan two weeks in, in advance only. We cannot plan our lives, we're just waiting, but waiting for how long? It could be very long. For you and I, um, working in the media, the worst thing that happens to us in this country is that if we say something people don't like, we get mean tweets, we get a nasty email, a letter mm -hmm. to the editor. Mm -hmm. It's very different um, you know, criticizing Vladimir Putin's regime in Russia. Uh, Paul, the places like Kiev that you went to you you went to Kiev during the war uh, after describe what you saw and and when you were there well the first time i was in kiev uh, was in 1991 when we became when the country became a country when when the republic of ukraine became independent and uh, i remember the uh, the energy on uh, on the square now we call Maidan Square. Uh, we call we call it Maidan, um, and uh, it was like I said, it, it was like at the beginning of something. And 
um, it was beautiful to see. Now um, I go back to Kiev. I found cafes. I found young people. Um, you know, the life materially, the life of pe people is better. But there's this. They're in war. There's this fear. There's a. But surprisingly, surprisingly, in Kiev right now, people go about their life. They live their lives. They they go to work every morning. They go to school every morning. They are extremely resilient. I when I was there, there was the open open market. It was in December. It was cold, but there was an open market of farmers, and people were buying what they needed. You know, they were. There was everything. It was like, you know, in the summer in, um, in Ontario or Quebec or anywhere in Canada, we have the farmer markets. Here in Montreal, it's at Water Market, Jean Talon. Over there, it was in December, and they had their usual weekend market. And uh, people were buying stuff, were sitting there, were drinking a beer, were drinking vodka, were, uh, were having a good time. And... Um, Suddenly, we could uh, hear a missile alert, and we all have to go to a shelter. Um, but uh, so you, that that happened to you while you were there. You had to go to a shelter because of an incoming missile. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I I took the train from Warsaw to Kiev. I arrived at six in the morning. I had to meet someone at ten o'clock. And we started to hear the, the alarm. It, it rings on your phone. It rings, uh, you could hear it also in the, in the, in the mall where you are. The, you, um, there's sirens and uh, you go to shelter. Uh, some people right now, uh, they hear, they, they're not nervous at all. And they could stay, some people decide to stay in their place of work. But that morning... My friend said, look, uh, it's, it's, it's supposed to be a big attack, and it's better if we go into shelter. And we went to the subway station, and you go in the, it, you know, deep in the subway station, and you, you wait, and we've waited three, four hours. And then afterwards, people, when the alert was off, we left, and everyone, everybody went back to... Uh, to their, to their work, to their home, and they continue their life. The restaurants that evening were full. People were in, you know, they were at their five to seven, their, their cinq à sept. And um, yeah, life continues. It's just shocking to me that, uh, that you went through that experience. And now, Kiev's obviously closer to the, it's not the front lines, but it's mm -hmm. closer to it. It's being struck. Uh, I believe you're also in, I'm not sure if I'll pronounce it right, but Lviv? Lviv. Lviv. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is, that's in uh, Western Ukraine, closer to the Polish border. Mm -hmm. Did you, uh, was it a similar situation there in that part of Ukraine, or was it even more detached from the fact that there's a war going on? No, it's, it's all the same. Yeah, in, in Ukraine, there's two wars. There's the front line and there's the war uh, in this, the, you know, there's the, the front line where there's fighting in set all the time. And, and there's the, the other war. It, they target the infrastructure and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a bizarre kind of situation where, as I said, you have, uh, 
you have these missiles who once in a while arrive and they usually they are um, they are intercepted by the air defense of the Russian army. So but every city in Ukraine is is could be targeted. So even if Lviv is far from the front line, it could be targeted, of course. And the, the target the infrastructure. I was in Odessa during that trip. Uh, there too, well, often in Odessa, they, they target the infrastructure uh, in Kiev, but most of the time, the uh, Ukrainian intercept these missiles and people are okay. But the 20% the that, that hits their target, and usually it's infrastructure, it's the uh, electricity transformer or it's the water supply, well, you know, that creates a lot of damage and, and there's a lot of people then that that have to live without electricity for uh, for many hours, sometimes many days. You write in your uh, series for National Post about being in Riga, Latvia, uh, which is a, a NATO allied country and, and how people know that at any moment they could be swallowed up. Um, we're going to take a, a quick break right now, Paul, and then when we come back, I wanna ask you about that because there is a, an awful lot of tension around the, the former Soviet satellites that, that are now NATO members that we're defending, that we know Putin has his eye on. So we'll talk about that after the break. I'm Brian Lilly, guest host on Full Comment Podcast. More coming up in moments. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Paul, in one of the pieces that you wrote about being in uh, Riga, Latvia, and meeting with um, cabinet minister there, but... You know, and those are the important people, and I want to hear about that. But I, I want to hear about the conversations you were having with people who knew and, and were telling you, hey, we, we get it. We know that Russia could just steamroll us at any moment. Is that something that you had to ask them about? Is that something that rolls off the tongue easily for them because it's, it's such a concern? It's, it's there. The fear is there. And uh, you, you take for granted it's there. They, um, it, 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 they, they will talk about it. Um, they, but again, a bit like in Kiev, people live their lives. And, they, um, and of course, it's in the back of their heads. It's, it's in the back of their mind, but it's there. Um, is it a similar tension to what you saw in Ukraine? Well, not exactly, because in Ukraine you have the sirens that once in a while reminds you that it's really there and it could, uh, you know, uh, anything could happen at any time. But um, in um, it's 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 very uh, it, it's a very strange kind of atmosphere in Riga, for example. It's Europe. It's really Europe. You pay in euro. You uh, you go to uh, H&M and you go to uh, to all these stores. There's great restaurants. Uh, everything since I was there in '91, I was there in '91 too, and 
And I, I rediscovered the city after 30 years. It doesn't uh, make me younger. <laughs> and um, it, it's fabulous. There's beautiful restaurants. There's all kinds of things. Uh, but, uh, but you see, I was at, at my hotel, for example. I saw NATO soldiers. There were people from Denmark and... Um, uh, Denmark and Poland, and they were actually meeting Canadian soldiers at the base just outside the, the city. So you see these signs uh, in, you know, you, you could, you see that. You see also stores that are, are closing, like very, like the, the very expensive stores, because the Russians who used to go there, and a lot of very rich Russians used to uh, live in Riga and spend a lot of time in Riga. Now they're not there anymore, so their money is not there anymore. And so it's, it's harder for these uh, uh, luxury stores to, to survive. So, so these stores could close. A lot of houses are in the market right now because Russians who used to have a permit to live there, uh, a residency permit, have lost their residency permit. So uh, you see it in the economy. You can feel it. Uh, cost of living. I think the inflation in in, uh, in Latvia is 21%. It's really, really high. So uh, you see that there's changes. And of course, you know, history has taught them that they're, they're never uh, totally secure, that uh, the, their border is with Russia and Belarusia, and uh, it's very fragile. The same thing in uh, in Georgia. Vladimir Putin has definitely shown that he wants to get the band back together. He wants to have a Russian empire, much like the old USSR. As a politician, former politician, a recovering politician that you are, Paul, um, <laughs> and as a journalist, someone who has lived in these places, visited uh, who's watched all of this closely. You've got a unique perspective, having been on both sides. Most of us just stay on one side mm -hmm. or the other. Have politicians in the West, whether it's Canada or elsewhere, have we taken that threat of Putin's expansionist desires seriously over the years? I'm not just talking about since the war started, but, you know, he, he signaled this for a long time, even before his invasion of Crimea. He, he has um, invaded uh, many places over the years. Did we take that threat of Putin wanting to get the band back together seriously enough? No. I think we closed our eyes. We didn't want to see. It was there. All was there. It was there. Uh, the, you know, remember in 2014, uh, the Russian army... Uh, took control via some militia uh, of the Donbass and took, uh, took over Crimea. Um, it was there. It was just in front of our eyes. And, we, uh, and some, some people were screaming very loud what we didn't want to hear. And now that's where we are. And um, it's when we were faced with the, this surreal invasion that Ultimately, uh, the West reacted. It's never too late, but uh, maybe maybe things could have been done earlier on. But I guess the West, NATO, the European Union really have to be pushed to finally react 
and act. And the good thing is that, contrary to what Putin hoped, uh, all these countries got together. They didn't. Uh, they didn't divide. They stayed together, and they're stronger than ever. And that's uh, that's uh, really revealing. And it's uh, it's it's very precious for Ukraine. Do you think that Western Europe is is really woken up on this? Though I. I I think Ukraine should have been a member of NATO years ago. And I spoke to uh, Canada's former for, uh, defense minister, Peter McKay, about his memories of being at a NATO meeting. I, I forget which one it was or where it was, but Ukraine's membership was up for a vote. And it was Sarkozy, then President of France, and Merkel from Germany speaking out against it. They said they did not want this. I mean, there's a a myth out there that says Putin only invaded Russia because he didn't want a NATO country on his border. Well, Latvia, Lithuania are members. Turkey has been a member for decades. They're all on Russia's border. So I don't believe that. But, you know, they, these powerful Central European countries, France and Germany, definitively did not want Ukraine to be part of NATO. They, they, they didn't want to, to bother Putin. Do you think that's changed now? Well, I think at that time they, they thought they could negotiate with Putin. They could make deals with Putin. And uh, it made sense that there was a buffer zone, that Ukraine should be the buffer zone, logically. Uh, but they thought they could negotiate with Putin. Uh, Merkel signed deals on gas uh, to and thinking that the deal she would have uh, with uh, with Russian gas and and uh, Germany would send uh, different things material to to uh, to Russia uh, that would that would do the job and and they could work with him but now we realize it's obvious you cannot work with Putin you cannot sign deals with Putin actually in Russia uh, right now unfortunately. The idea of compromising is a sign of weakness. And so um, now I think the, the West get it. But, um, but it took, and, and it's, 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 of course, uh, it, it, I understand that the, the, they hope that they could, um, that they could, uh, they could try to find compromise with, with Russia because that's, that's the logical way to, to, um, to to go to go ahead in Western democracies, you know, and to progress, but it doesn't work like that in um, in a country that is uh, that has a logic of an empire. And now we we see the reality, and we see how it is, and that that's why after after that that whole trip that that whole trip, I I I believe that uh, the only way out is to be very resolute. And to support Ukraine until the end, and uh, there's no compromise to do with Putin until the Russian army is out of this territory, out of Ukraine, and out of Georgia too. There is overwhelming support, in my experience, in Canada, less so in the United States, but overwhelming support for Ukraine. But there is a 
a small and vocal group of people um, throughout the Western world, not just in Canada and the U.S., but throughout the Western world who believe that Putin's right, that Russia is uh, in the right, that Ukraine is corrupt. Uh, or if they don't support Putin, they just believe that Ukraine and, and Zelensky are corrupt. I'll ask you a follow-up about Ukraine and corruption and what you've seen in a moment, but does it surprise you how many people in Western countries support Putin? I don't know what to say. Uh, I really don't know what to say. I guess, you know, there's there's people on both sides all the time. Uh, everybody's free to have their own opinion. And... Uh, it's, uh, it, it, but, but I think that, uh, if, 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 uh, if, if Putin goes ahead, the, we, we permit him to, uh, we, we permit to him to, to continue to destabilize Europe and to destabilize, you know, uh, places like South Caucasus and, and the rest of the world. And it's, it's not a good idea. Have, What's your experience on the issue of corruption in, in Ukraine? You spoke earlier about how in the 90s, as things opened up, it became incredibly corrupt. And, and I'm sure that was the deal everywhere. Um, but there is this persistent narrative that I think is pushed by Russian disinformation that um, Ukraine is just a money laundering operation, uh, that it's, uh, you know, the entire government's corrupt, that Zelensky's corrupt. Did you hear about any of that from people in Ukraine? Have you seen anything uh, that would support those views in your travels? Or do you think, as I do, that this is just simply uh, Russian disinformation propaganda? Uh, well, corruption is <laughs> it is not only in uh, in Ukraine; it's uh, it's in Russia too, big time. Um, but um, yeah, I think that's not the point. I mean, yeah, th there's there's a lot of in in Ukraine. Uh, there's a there's a problem with corruption, uh, but I guess that right now the, the essential, the most important, the priority is to fight. Uh, the Russian army and, and fight this invasion and, and to be, uh, successful. Um, of course, there's progress to be made uh, on that front. But right now, you know, there's a war. And I think on the other side, on the Russian side, there's a huge, there's huge problem with corruption. It's, uh, it's giant. And, um, it's, um, it's very problematic. It's a plutocracy in Russia, and uh, it's uh, it, it, it's a very repressive state. So, um, corruption, yeah, th there is corruption. Pro there is corruption in, in Ukraine, but right now, that's not the priority at all. And hopefully, after the war, this should be there should be laws, and those laws should be applied. And, uh, and I think everybody is aware that uh, if they want to, to progress, they will have to, um, they, they need to have a state of law, they have to, uh, they, they have to strengthen their, their legal, their, their legal system. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but right now, this is not a priority, the priority is to fight the war. 
if you have not read uh, Paul Robitaille's uh, series, Back to the USSR and National Post yet, I encourage you to do so. You can find it online at nationalpost.com. Um, Paul, I, I want you to tell me the thing that shocked you the most, that pleased you the most, that saddened you the most when you were there. Um, let's start with what, what surprised you on, on your return? What's something that pops out when I say after 25, 30 years away, what surprised you when you went back? I think it's the youth, the young people. They're, they're amazing. They're connected to Europe. Uh, they're curious. They want a better world. Um, and they, yeah, when I was there uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I mean, everything revolved about, uh, around Moscow. It was the metropole. It was where things were happening. It was a big city. Now the, the young people are turning uh, towards Europe and they are connected with Europe and they're, um, they're great and they're full of hope and uh, they're in cafes, they work, they're curious, they go to school, they're very resilient. I guess that's what surprised me the most, the, the energy of the youth. So I don't end on a sad note, I'll ask next, what saddened you? And then I'll ask you what... What what made you smile? So first, first the sad one, so we don't end on a sad note. Well, everything could collapse if this war uh, doesn't go their way, and that would be very, very sad. Uh, so I guess it's the fragility of what they have right now. It's so fragile. And Both for uh, Ukraine and Latvia and Georgia, I'm guessing. Exactly. For of course, Ukraine, but then afterwards, Georgia and Latvia. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it holds on nothing. It, it's very, very precious what they have, and it's, they could lose it any time. What made you smile? <laughs> it's the, the, how could I say, the, um, the l'ingéniosité, you know, like, uh, the, how they are, they could see solution in everything. They could, they find solution in everything. And, uh, they're very creative. Um, and they continue their life despite the sirens, despite the missiles once in a while. And, uh, incredibly resistant and resilient. So, uh, yeah, that, I mean, you see situation and you're like, wow. <laughs> it really gives you hope. All right. Paul Robitai, thanks so much for the time. Thanks so much for the, the writings. Fantastic pieces in National Post. Thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Brian Lilly. I'm guest host for uh, Full Comment this week. Full Comment is a post-media podcast production. This episode was produced by Andre Through. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive director. Do remember that you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you're listening. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Make sure you leave a rating or a review. And remember, you can also listen through your Alexa-enabled devices. Make sure you tell your friends about us as well. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.